The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. I want to talk to you about the urgency of revival and then a fascinating interview with Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe about some techniques to what put artificial intelligence in our brains. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Oh, this is going to be a fascinating discussion. Trust me on that. This is going to be a fascinating discussion. I'm going to speak with biochemist Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe about Elon Musk's Neuralink. What is it? What should we make of it? Where is artificial intelligence and beyond going? We'll talk about that at the bottom of the hour, 866-34-TRUTH. Phone lines are open for anything you want to talk to me about, 866-3487-884. And gobbling on tomorrow's broadcast, Thursday Jewish Thursday, we'll unpack what's happened with the Israeli elections. Yeah, things may change dramatically between now and tomorrow in terms of coalitions and things shifting. Otherwise, there may be another deadlock. So we'll take that up on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. We won't be getting into that today, but it is important, and we, we do want to double back to it. Friends, America is ripe for revival and visitation. Why do I say that? Because we're in a messed up state. Because America is as broken and confused and divided as I've ever seen it in my lifetime and hurting and looking for answers and further polarizing in its divisions. And the church in many ways is as broken as I've ever seen it in my lifetime with scandals, with hyper-politization, with Oh, you name it, we could go through a list of of issues that have happened in the church that have us in a very humbled state. And Jesus says, it is the sick who need a physician. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Psalm 63, the psalmist spoke of a hunger he had for God and for his presence. That was a longing, that, that was a passionate thirst and desire. Revival comes with a sense of urgency. Revival comes because it's revival or else. It's God's visitation or else. I want to look with you at Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. The prophet is writing in an extreme time in the history of Judah. He has seen the great sin in the midst of his nation and has cried out to God. And God shows him what he's going to do in answer to that cry. He's going to bring judgment, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to decimate Judah and bring their idol worship in with them. And Habakkuk sees this, and the the cure is worse than the disease. And he cries out. And in the third chapter, there's a psalm, there's a prayer. And and in verse 2, he he says these very, very poignant words. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase what the text says for you. But it's basically this. God, we've, we've heard about what you've done in the past. We've heard about the great miracles and the great outpourings and, and the awakenings and, and the stirrings and the miracles and Mount Sinai and, and Exodus. And we've heard about what you've done in the past. But Lord, do it again in our day. Make these things known in our day. 
Grandpa's stories won't save this generation. Grandma's encounters won't change the young people. We need a fresh encounter with your hand now. We need to see your hand stretched out today. So do it again in our day. New JPS, oh Lord, I've learned of your renown. I'm all, I've heard about it. It's, it's amazing. But now do it again. Renew them in these years. Oh, make them known in our time. And then in wrath, remember mercy. Though angry, may you remember compassion. And friends, that's why there's a sense of urgency with revival, because you recognize judgment is near. You recognize it's revival or else. I have a book coming out in September, Revival or We Die. And I want you to hear what revival scholar James Edwin Orr had to say about this. Here he is in his 80s, and he's lecturing about revival. And there's a striking statement about revival being like Judgment Day. Listen to what Dr. Orr had to say. You heard of the Shantung Revival. Miss Olive was there. But that revival was felt in every province of China. And when it reached Sichuan, W.W. Castle summed it up in five words. Surprise, five words. He said, it is like Judgment Day. Now, Miss Olive is right here, and she won't mind my referring to her. She remembers what she saw in China when she was a young missionary. It wasn't hooping and hollering. It was like Judgment Day, with weeping and confessing. A lot of people think that revival is a tremendous time of excitement and a great roll call of converts and so forth. It begins like Judgment Day, with the Holy Spirit exposing all the sins of the church. Now this is something we don't realize, that first stage of revival after the prayer is conviction of sin. Judgment precedes blessing. Now I've told you stories of the Welsh Revival. A hundred thousand people outside the churches converted and joined the churches in five months. Five years later, someone wrote a book to debunk the movement and complained that after five years, only 75% still stood. He said, many were lost to mission halls and to the Pentecostals. Some of them couldn't stand the dryness that some people wanted to go back to. Mm. Revival is like Judgment Day starts with conviction of sin and confession of sin. And then out of that comes the joy and the renewal. I, I want to take you into a very sacred moment. I, I just found this clip last night. It was in the midst of the Brownsville revival, so in the late 1990s. And there was an altar call that evangelist Steve Hill had given. People were up at the altar getting right with God. And I got gripped with a tremendous burden to tell a story. I don't remember telling it more than once. I remember telling it another time 
during the revival. But I, I want you to feel the urgency. I, I want you to feel the intensity. I want you to feel what it's like when God is convicting and the Holy Spirit is drawing people and it's this sense of if you don't get right tonight, it could be all over. Listen to this call from Pensacola in the midst of revolve. You want to know urgency? You want to know intensity? Listen to this. Everyone that's here knows I've never, I've never spoken what I'm about to speak here before. It's the urgent. People in the chapel, in the cafeteria, it's urgent. There was a ship that went down about two years ago with over a thousand Swedes on it between Estonia and Sweden and Finnish waters. It was the worst disaster in peacetime, the worst sea disaster. Over 900 people died. Terrible waves. People perishing. It happened. And you know that there are some Bible school students who are on that boat. My friends know some of these people. Listen to me. They're on that boat. One of them had a dream that the ship was going down. And he shared it with others and they just thought it was some spiritual vision he had. But they were sitting on the ship as it was going across. And they began to talk to each other and they said, what are we sitting here for? We should go around preaching. This happened. It's the untold part of the story. It happened. And they went around preaching. And they said, what if this ship went down tonight? What if the ship went down tonight? Are you ready to meet God? Would you be in heaven or hell? And then suddenly, bang, the ship is down. And almost all the people perished in the waters. And some of those Bible school students made it out. The one who had the vision, the moment he heard the smash, he ran and he made it out. And others gave their lives helping people. But do you know that eyewitnesses said as the people were going down in the water, some were screaming, Jesus, save me, and others were cursing his name. Listen to me in the chapel, cafeteria, choir room, and in here, there are some of you, and disaster is right at the door, and it's over. That's over right. forever. That's it. No way out. And this is the last time you'll ever see that flame flickering if it's for one person i'm telling you right now get down here yes. respond in the chapel yes there's an urgency friend as intense as i've ever felt in this place get down you don't have tomorrow you're going to be one of those on that ship going down forever come in the choir room in the chapel if you're here in the balcony still, get down. This is God saying there's still a last chance. Yeah, friends, I watch it, and obviously I'm passionate. I love the Lord, but to get gripped like that, you don't just work that up. That was no emotional ploy. That was the Holy Spirit pleading through me. And I've seen that time and time again in revival. It gets very intense because eternity becomes real. Revival comes with urgency. Revival is like Judgment Day. Revival brings upheaval. Listen to what Pastor Shane Eidelman wrote, my colleague and friend in California. He said, nearly a decade ago, I prayed, Lord, bring revival to the churches, but I was not ready for the response that followed. He said, I share the response in the sermon below as often as possible 
to reach as many people as possible. He said, after I prayed, it was almost as if God was saying, you don't want revival. It will ruin your schedule, your dignity, your image, and your reputation as a person who is well-balanced. Men will weep throughout the congregation. Women will wail because of the travail of their own souls. Young adults will cry like children at the magnitude of their sin. With the strength of my presence, the worship team will cease playing. Time will seem to stand still. You won't be able to preach because of the emotions flooding your own soul. You'll struggle to find words but only find tears. Even the most dignified and reserved among you will be broken and humbled as little children. The proud and self-righteous will not be able to stand in my presence. The doubter and unbeliever will either run for fear or fall on their knees and worship me. There can be no middle ground. The church will never be the same again. That's the urgency of revival. That's the cost of revival. That's the reality of revival. But friends, we must have it. God, revive us or we die. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Remember, the bottom of the hour, going to be joined by biochemist Fuzz Rana. We're going to completely change topics, change direction, change focus. But let me just pause here for another moment on revival. We, we did a revival-focused show on Monday and many of you who've been following me know that our ministry has an emphasis of three R's. Revival, revolution, redemption. What do we mean by those? Well, revival, self-evident, revival in the church. That, that a great burden we carry, a great calling in our ministry is to stir renewal, awakening within the body. God's people returning to their first love. God's people turning away from sin and complacency, God's people encountering the Lord afresh, and then with that, reaching out to a lost and dying world. Revival in the church leading to awakening in the society. And that leads straight into our second R, which is revolution, meaning a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution. Not an armed uprising, not rebellion, but rather Jesus transforming his people and we being transformed Bring about a transformation of the culture through the gospel. It is God's kingdom pushing back against the kingdom of this world. So revival in the church, gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in society, and redemption in Israel, the salvation of the Jewish people. And for me as a Jewish believer, but also based on, on Scripture, I see this as the culmination of everything. And with this, our heart beats for the Great Commission. So I've had the privilege of traveling outside the U.S. probably a couple hundred times. Had a great time yesterday with my old friend John Kava talking about missions and God's heart for the whole world. And when you get out, when you travel, when you do missions trip, when you spend substantial time, I've, I've spent a few years of my life total overseas and doing, doing ministry. You, you, America's important, but Ameri you see everything differently. You know what I'm saying? Because you, you, you see God's heart for the entire world and his burden for the lost and, and his care for, for the poorest of the poor and individuals that are just outcast. And it's an amazing thing to see the Holy Spirit touch people and to see the Great Commission fulfilled. And the culmination of this is what? A mighty harvest from the nations, a great harvest from the nations, a multitude, 
that no one could number. The fullness of the Gentiles, as Paul describes it in Romans eleven twenty five, and on the heels of this, all Israel being saved, the national conversion of the Jewish people. So that's that's what our heart beats for. But really, without revival, without the first R, the other two R's won't happen. Without God's people being visited and coming alive, the other R's won't happen. And, and what I want to really encourage you to do is look at your own life and ask God to show you if you've left your first love. Ask God to show you if you become compromised or complacent or cold. Or maybe you've been through hell and back. Maybe you, you, you've suffered terrible loss physical loss, emotional loss, relational loss, financial loss. You've been through a really difficult, difficult time, and, and you're just, you're, you're worn out. You're beaten down. You need refreshing. Or, or maybe just constant attack and the busyness of life. It's, it's robbed you of the joy you used to have. Maybe you went through a difficult church split. Maybe you're really believing God for something. Things fell through. Either way, you're not who you used to be. That old joy, that old intimacy, that old purpose, that old freedom, that old faith, it's not there. I don't say this to condemn. I say this to say you're ripe for renewal. You're ripe for revival. You say, but what do I do? How do I get back? How do I recover things that I lost? Well, remember what Jesus says in Revelation 2, speaking to the church in Ephesus. He commends the church for their hard work, for their perseverance, for their doctrinal purity, for exposing those who claim to be apostles and were not. Then he says, yet I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. And he says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Do the things you did at first. Repent and do the things you did at first. So go before the Lord and reflect back to what you had in him, who you were in him, how you walked with him, what you experienced in him. Maybe the passion you had to reach the lost and to share your testimony or the love you had for prayer or the, the sensitivity you had for holiness. And let, let that burn in you and, and then do what you did at first. Here, maybe, maybe this will, will help you. Uh, those of you who are married and over the course of years of marriage, things get stale and the weariness of life and challenges of raising kids and making a living and staying on top of things, and you realize, you know, we're, we're kind of neglecting each other. So what do you do? You do what you did at first, the simple thing, date night. That You clear your schedule, you get babysitters, you do what you need to do, and you go out and just have fun. You go to a restaurant that you have good memories of, or you, you go out do th- and you just enjoy time together with the two of you. Then you do it regularly, and then as you're involved more and more things, doing things together, it just, that spark is there. It's it returns. Do what you did at first. Don't allow the enemy of your souls to condemn you. You're so you'll never get back. It's too late for you. You've fallen too far. You'll always be a shell of yourself. You're just like somebody that's had too many injuries and too many disappointments. You're always just no, no. That's it's either a lie from your own mind, or what others tell you, or what the the enemy Satan wants to tell you. God's mercy is in you every morning. And he's the one saying, turn back to me and I'll turn back to you. So every day, take a step in that direction. Every day, spend more time with him. If you're only praying five minutes, pray 10. If you weren't reading the word at all, read a chapter. Take a step. Take a step. Then you feel prompted, hey, skip this meal. 
Then you feel prompted, you know, I should turn that off. I shouldn't be watching it. Just go with it. And before you know it, there's going to be fresh fire and fresh desire. And maybe you're going to be prompted to share your faith. You haven't done that in a while. And you start to step out. It's like, wow, I'm feeling renewed. I'm, I'm feeling God's presence again. I, I want to encourage you that he is, he is calling you. It, it's the Holy Spirit prompting you. If there's a stirring going on, there is something fresh from heaven and friends, I believe that all over the earth, this is a constant with the Lord based on Second Chronicles 16.9. In fact, can I quote it to you in Hebrew? I, I love quoting it in Hebrew. It's kind of an interesting syntax. It says, Ki Adonai, for the Lord, enav meshotetot bechol ha'aretz. His eyes are going back and forth through the whole earth. So he's looking. He's looking. It's, it's literally a back and forth. That's what the Hebrew is. Enav meshotetot his eyes are going back, back and forth, to and fro, throughout the whole earth. That he may stand in strong support of those whose hearts are wholly his. Did you hear that word shalem? It's related to shalom. It has to do here not with peace, but wholeness, wholehearted devotion. And, and, and what does he do for those people? He stands in strong support. That Hebrew verb is, is also used when, when Gabriel is helped by, by Michael, the archangel, in, in Daniel, the 10th chapter, bringing a message to him, but he's, he's resisted by the prince of Persia. And then Michael comes and supports him, and he's able to prevail and deliver the message. Yeah, so God is looking for people that he can back. God is looking not for your performance. Yes, spending quality time with God is important, but he's not standing there. We've got like six, seven billion stopwatches in heaven, and there's, oh, prayed three and a half minutes, prayed six minutes. No, no, he's not looking at performance. He's looking at the heart. And, and you may say, you don't understand. With COVID now, all the kids are home. They're home all day. And, and I, I got two little ones under four, and now I got to supervise the school of, of the older three that are seven to 11. And then there's dinner and, and meals and cleaning up and laundry. And I don't, by the time everybody falls asleep, I'm out. Yeah, that's understandable. Very challenging. But what about your heart? What about your heart while you're doing what you're doing? Have you ever, have you ever been worried about something? And no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're working on, you, you, feel, you feel worried, you feel that, that anxiety, or you're excited about something and whatever you're doing during the day, you're thinking about that, or you're depressed about something and whatever you're doing during the day, you feel that burden. Well, how about having a hunger for God? How about over the course of the day, just a prayer, oh God, oh God, he sees that, he sees that. And then as he sees that hunger, he'll, he'll give opportunities. He'll provide support so that you're able to, to meet with him. And then what about having worship music on? Or, you know, Nancy found when, when, the, when the kids were little and there was just a busyness in the course of the day and, and while well, one's napping, the other's running around. And, and she realized, okay, the, the room of the house that I'm passing through the most in the course of the day is the kitchen. Is the kitchen. So I'm just going to leave the Bible open in the kitchen. And whenever, you know, Whenever there's a free minute, I'm just going to stand there and, and read Scripture and take in a little more of the Word. And it, it began to have an impact. 
wherever you are, you're driving to work, you're driving alone, you don't listen, you don't need to catch up with the, the news or the sports report. Or, how about worshiping God? How about listening to the Word? In other words, wherever you are, take steps to go after God. And then pastors, call your people to pray for revival. Put a vision of revival before them. Stir their hearts. Read more about revival. Read about the history of revival. See what God has done in past awakenings and think, okay, what about my church? What about my congregation? What what about my region? Does God want to pour out his spirit? Yes, he does. Does God want to heal America's wounds, the wounds of the nation, wherever you're watching or listening? Yes, he does. Then to our faces, crying out, oh God, visit us. If it's time of wrath, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. All right, we'll be right back with Fuzrana. Don't go anywhere. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. What, what if we could have some kind of attachment in our brains that could, well, enables, enable us to do things we normally couldn't do? What if it could be used to, to make up for certain deficiencies and disabilities what if we could enhance our mental capabilities? Or are these the kind of things we don't want to mess with? This is Michael Brown. This is The Line of Fire. And I am joined now by my friend, Dr. Fuzz Rana, with Reasons to Believe. He is a PhD in chemistry, focuses on biochemistry. And when we got a, a contact from Reasons to Believe saying, would you like to have Fuzz on to talk about this subject? I said, are you kidding me? Of course. So, Fuzz, great to have you back on the line of fire. Michael, thanks for having me. It's been a while, but I always enjoy hanging out with you. Yeah, well, way too long. It was, it was uh, memorable to be down with your whole team years back and, and see the great organization you have. And then, of course, you and colleagues that, that have been on many times over the years. Yeah, but it's been, it's been way too long. So first, how are things going in your world these days? You know, they're going really well, you know, in spite of the upheaval that this last year is represented, you know, uh, I feel very blessed and, and are and reasons to believe is been thriving under these difficult circumstances. So I have no, no complaints whatsoever and nothing but gratitude. Yeah. And, and are, are you seeing that people have more uncertainty and more questions because of COVID and, and so much uncertainty in the society around us? Have you, you found people reaching out more for answers? Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. And, you know, also see more and more people really turning to uh, science as uh, really almost a place of hope, you know, and uh, I, you know, I see a lot of things on social media claims like, look, I believe in science. And so science is beginning to, to almost develop this, this mystical, <laughs> this mystical uh, sense, you know, uh, people are developing a techno faith of sorts because of, I think, the pandemic and the idea that maybe science is a, a way to, to rescue us. 
Yeah, the thing that's interesting, of course, is you could almost come to the opposite conclusion because of, you know, mixed signals and what are we supposed to do and what works and doesn't work and is the vaccine safe or not? You know, it, it could either get you looking at science or questioning science, but either way, you folks are pers- perfectly positioned to say, hey, what we want is truth. And, and we're scientists, but we want truth and all truth is found in God. So for, for those who don't know who Elon Musk is, why don't you just give the super quick intro and then what in the world is this Neuralink that he's talking about? Yeah, well, you know, uh, Elon Musk is perhaps one of the richest people in the world. He's a, a technologist, a, a futurist of sorts. And if you're not familiar with Elon Musk, you probably have heard of Tesla or SpaceX. These are Elon Musk uh, companies. And he's a, the type of person that wants to shape the future through science and technological advance. And recently he's founded a company called Neuralink, with the idea of commercializing what are called neural implants or uh, sometimes brain-computer interfaces, where he sees these neural implants as really being the next generation of interface between the human user and electronic devices. So just as we're comfortable now using Alexa or Siri to give voice commands to electronic devices, Elon Musk envisions these neural implants will allow us control electronic devices just simply with our thoughts. Mm. So when you first hear that, does that strike you as what a wonderful use of technology and another incredible development that could help many people? Or does that concern you about us trying to overstep our bounds? You know, that, that's a great question. And there's really, unfortunately, not a simple answer. You know, for the most part, when I look at the work that's being done in brain-computer interface technology, I'm actually very excited about it because a lot of the work is really biomedical in orientation with the goal of, hey, if we, if we could treat people that are locked in you know, because of a stroke or a, a brain injury and they can't communicate, you know, or we could help people that are amputees gain control of robotic prosthetic limbs you know, through, their, through their thoughts, they can control these limbs and things like that. What what wonderful, wonderful advances. But what, what Elon Musk is doing is looking at actually creating these neural implants for really technology purposes, that these implants would augment us as human beings and give us capacities that we don't naturally have. And that now is, is, creates discomfort in me where he's looking at using these devices really as enhancements as opposed to really something that's designed to treat people suffering from, you know, horrendous diseases or debilitating injuries. Right. So, again, with so much technology, there's good, and then there are lines that get crossed, right? So, you know, there's technology that extends human life, but then we can just extend life so it's not even life anymore. And then we have questions about when death occurs and and questions that never would have come up if not for some of our of our good technology. So from what you understand from Elon Musk and his worldview, where does he want to go with this? What's, what's the outer limit of what he could be proposing? Well, you know, Elon Musk is, again, a fascinating person because with his companies, Tesla and SpaceX, where he's looking at, you know, revolutionizing the automotive industry, where he's looking at, trying to commercialize space flight, maybe even colonize Mars. 
he has a real optimistic outlook on what technology could do for the future. But with Neuralink, it's almost a pessimism that, that is motivating the work there. And sure, the technology would have biomedical uses and, again, could be used you know, for creating a human-machine interface. But for Elon Musk, he actually sees an, an existential imperative to developing this technology because he's afraid that the a artificial intelligence systems that we're developing in the near future will actually become autonomous systems. And when that happens and when they begin to operate on their own, according to Musk, suddenly humanity is in jeopardy, that, that these machines could subjugate us, they could actually uh, maybe even drive humanity to extinction. And so he argues that unless we develop these neural implants and provide the means to interface our brains with computer systems to augment our intellectual capability, we're never going to be able to compete with AI systems, and we become vulnerable. So he, he actually sees the development of these neural implants as critical for our survival as a species because of his fear of artificial intelligence. All right, got it. So, so this is not just a matter of someone that's blind, perhaps able to see or deaf able to hear or paralyzed able to use limbs. And it even goes beyond, well, here you could learn a language instantly just having it downloaded to your brain. This is our answer. So we need technology to fight technology. So let's step back and ask this larger question. Are you concerned about the potential power of AI and where it could go? Is it just science fiction writers and movies that talk about this, or, or are there reasons for us to be concerned about artificial intelligence taking over the world? Uh, you know, I actually think there is some reason to be concerned about this. And again, you know, AI, like other, all other technologies, can be used for enormous amount of good, but again, it can be also used or misused, you know, for, you know, nefarious purposes. But also there's just simply unintended consequences many times with technology. And the more powerful the technology, sometimes the more devastating the unintended consequences. And so I am actually very concerned, but, it's, but I would never go on record as saying that we shouldn't explore advances in artificial intelligence because of the real benefits that this technology could provide for us. We just have to go into this, into this the technology development with our eyes wide open, I think, and really be thoughtful uh, about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And if we do decide to do something, what are the parameters that we're going to put in place to ensure the highest use of the technology without, again, it being misused or suffering, again, from just something that surprises us, that takes us, you know, aback that we never anticipated would be a negative consequence. Uh, and, and is this like discussion about cloning and that it's unethical to think of human clothing, whether it's possible or not is another issue. And what about a human soul and where does that come in? But is this the same kind of thing that you have to put guidelines on technology for the purposes of, of not destroying the human race? Yes, I think so. I think that's exactly, exactly it, you know, and this is where the Christian worldview I think becomes so really powerful because I've not seen a system of secular ethics that really actually can effectively guide our deliberations with a lot of this emerging technology. But with Christianity, you've got this beautiful complement 
where the, the, the Christian worldview encourages science, it encourages the development of technology to, to mitigate pain and suffering, to promote human flourishing. But at the same time, it recognizes the value of every human life and would put in place, again, safeguards to protect even those people that are the most marginalized, the most vulnerable in, in our world, to ensure that they get equitable access to the technologies and that they're not exploited you know, or, or left behind in the process of developing these technologies. So to me, the Christian worldview has a lot to say. And of course, as Christians, we also recognize that, that human beings are sinful and that, that the impact of sin can, can pervert in, 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 you know, pervert even the best, uh, the best ideas, the best technology. Got it. And, and uh, I, I want to ask a larger question about, about science, technology, human effort, and God, and where this all fits together. But 45 seconds, if you could talk to Elon Musk, what would you want to convey to him? Uh, I think I would convey to him, in a nutshell, you know, technology is a wonderful thing. It can it improve the quality of our lives, but it can never save us. You know, and if you really are looking for the salva- your salvation and the salvation of humanity, that has to be, you have to search uh, for the pers- through the person of Christ. It's only attained through the person of Christ, not through what we can create by our own hands. Yeah, and the ultimate message, especially for those that are thinking about saving the human race, there's only one Savior. Hey, friends, visit reasons.org for all ages, for skeptics, for seekers, for those with difficult questions. You'll find it to be a phenomenally rich and very accessible website about science and faith, reasons.org. All right, we'll be right back with Dr. Fuzrana. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm speaking with biochemist Dr. Fuzz Rana. He is one of the researchers and contributors to Reasons to Believe. Go to Reasons org with your scientific questions that relate to scripture. You may have heard about some new discovery or something going on in the world of science, or this allegedly disproves the Bible, or they'll be dealing with it. They, they constantly post new articles, videos, great resource of, of information for the body of Christ there. Fuzz, in, in Genesis, the 11th chapter, we read about the Tower of Babel, and God deals with human arrogance. Hey, if we can do this, we can do anything. And there is an aspect of human beings wanting to push God out of the picture and think they can save the world on their own. So, of course, God's going to thwart that and and we'll fail in our efforts. But sometimes we get so skeptical as Christians of the scientific world that that we can we can kind of step back and question everything. What's a healthy mentality to have towards the world of science and the great accomplishments of the world of science, including the medical world? and yet recognizing human limitations in the midst of it. Yeah, that's, that's really the challenge, you know, is uh, recognizing that, first of all, 
I think science really is a gift that God has given to us, you know, that, that allows us to unleash the providence that he has built into the created order uh, so that we can, as we understand the world around us, we can take advantage of that understanding to really, you know, uh, again, mitigate pain and suffering, to promote human flourishing. And so it, it allows us to unleash and unlock the good that is within the creation. You know, unfortunately, uh, science today has become largely an atheistic enterprise uh, because it, it's shaped by this, this view called methodological naturalism, which is a $25 word that just simply means that when you engage in science, you pretend as if God doesn't exist, and you only seek after mechanistic explanations. Well, the net effect of that is that, that it then prevents you from explaining certain features in nature as being the handiwork of a creator. And so instead of seeing God's handiwork in the world around us, all you see is, is mechanism, and that many times, I think, uh, causes people to embrace an atheistic worldview uh, because of, of, of the credibility and the respect that science has in our world today, where science operates as if God is not necessary. And so, as a consequence, many people think that science really undermines belief in God, when in fact, you know, it's, it's the opposite. So recognizing that, that again, worldview plays a key role is very important uh, in terms of how we view scientific discoveries. But, but then on the other hand, the, the technology we develop, too, again, I think is a, a, is a reflection of the fact that we bear God's image. And I think when we develop technology, it brings glory to God for the simple reason we're, we're exercising and manifesting the image of God. But when I look at the Tower of Babel, uh, you know, I, what I see here is not so much people you know, trying to play God that's the issue, it's people trying to take God's place. So I'm perfectly fine with Christians playing God, because we have no choice. We, we bear God's image. But if we're trying to take God's place through the gifts that God has given us, that is when I think things can go sideways. And again, this is why the Christian voice in our culture becomes really so important, because it puts a break on this atheistic um, framework that really undergirds a lot of science and technology today, and, and with that, I think, are consequences that really can be, instead of being beneficial to humanity, become a devastating to humanity. Yeah, really. And then with everything, again, that human beings do, there are limitations because of the fall and futility of the human race. Is there any technology that is envisioned that could, that could save us from death? Well, you know, that's the hope of, of people like Elon Musk, is that, you know, if we could modify our biological makeup, you know, through gene editing or brain-computer interface technologies, melding our biological makeup with machines, or maybe we could discover anti-aging technology that could extend life expectancy, the hope is that we could attain at least minimally a practical immortality. And, uh, and so this is really an idea that is becoming increasingly prominent in the academy, as well as, I think, uh, in culture at large. And, you know, in other words, people are really looking for salvation, but they're looking for salvation through what science and technology can offer, uh, as opposed to the person of Christ. 
Yeah, and of course, that's, that's always going to fall short. It's always going to fall short. The, the gospel is going to be relevant until the last human breath before Jesus returns. The, the message of the cross is going to be relevant. And in fact, the more the world tries to become secular without God, the more there's, there's a massive hole because we are created in his image. And, and Fuzz, it's so important that people like you are doing what you're doing because it's easy to be intimidated by science. Uh, kids in college and university are bombarded and, 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 and our views are ridiculed and, and we're all painted as fools and obscurantists and things. So it, it's, it's important to know that there are people, PhDs in chemistry and biology and, and geology and astronomy that are solid Bible believers that are pointing people to Jesus. And, and ultimately, uh, I, I would expect, and you know I'm not a scientist, but I would expect the more we learn the more impossible it's going to be to deny the existence of God, the creator. That's been my experience. You know, I've been doing this for a number of years now, and year after year after year, I think the scientific case for a creator is just becoming stronger and stronger. Uh, And, and, you know, uh, if we just are able to look at these scientific discoveries through biblical lens, we we see God's handiwork everywhere we look, every, all around us. Yeah, and, you know, just what I've learned, even just focusing on something like DNA or, you know, just trying to come at something in a rational way with no presuppositions, you think, how could someone argue against the existence of God or the, against the existence of a designer? And, and you've got, just looking at some of your books, Who is, Who is Adam? Creating Life in the Lab, The Cell's Divine, Humans 2.0. I mean, just, just focusing on the cell, it would seem that anyone looking at this rationally would have to say, okay, this has been designed in an intentional way. This couldn't just happen. Uh, maybe just take a minute to tell us about one or two of these books while we still have you with us. Yeah, sure thing. Well, and just to your point, Michael, uh, I was an agnostic when I started graduate school studying biochemistry. Mm. And within, uh, within a year's time, I had not only came to the conviction that there must be a mind, because of the elegance and the sophistication of the cell, but I uh, converted to Christianity uh, because I felt as if it was the God of the Bible was the mind that I discovered, you know, inside the cell or is being responsible for producing the cell. Uh, but you know, for for me, one of the, the really cool discoveries in biochemistry is again relating to DNA. But the, the cell's machinery that manipulates DNA, and, and DNA is an information storage molecule, but the cell's machinery that manipulates DNA is literally operating like a computer system. It's so much so that there are now nanotechnologists that are building computers out of DNA and the, 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 the machinery in the cell that manipulates DNA. This is called DNA computing. Mm. And these computers are wet computers that are held in these really tiny test tubes that are more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer system. And so, you know, nobody in their right mind would think of a computer system as being assembled through unguided evolutionary processes. It took brilliant minds to assemble computer systems. And when we look at, at, bio, at, at the fact that these computer systems are literally in operation inside the cell, uh, the only explanation to me is that there's a mind behind it all. Yeah, and again, it, it just it just seems like the only logical, rational explanation. Wasn't it uh, Fred Hoyle, his famous analogy, 
of of you know to get the universe where we have it or the world we have it would be like a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and once it blows through it's built a a, a seven forty seven you know some something yeah, like that right. yeah. yeah that was Fred Hoyle yeah and and interestingly enough he was no friend to the Christian faith whatsoever you interesting know, uh, yeah yeah well and Fred Hoyle also discovered some of the first evidence for the fine tuning of his response was that it's as if a super intellect has monkeyed with with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and yet so he you know still uh, you know uh, held to a, a, a non Christian worldview. Yeah, I, I was I was once talking to a law professor while flying, and, and he said he's a devout atheist. And I said, sir, I said with all respect, I believe that. I said because it takes a whole lot more faith to be an atheist. <laughs> Than to believe it, I, I mean, he was he was real forthright with me, so I thought I could be with him. But Fuzz, we we appreciate what what you're doing. Anything you want our, our listeners to know about your website? Anything going on of special importance? You know, I, I would just say, look, if you if you have questions about how science fits with the Christian faith, I would just encourage you to visit our website, reasons.org. We have a, a a ton of resources that are available to people at no cost that can help them navigate. The, you know, the complexities of the science-faith dialogue. And by doing so, I think you're, you're going to walk away with your faith encouraged. Yeah, and just to hear of your own salvation story, how, how remarkable. So friends, check it out, reasons.org. If you're looking for Dr. Rano's books, his first name, F-A-Z-A-L-E, better known as Fuzz, and then Rana, R-A-N-A. So check out some of his books. Check out the website, Reasons. Dot org. And thanks for joining us and enlightening us. We always appreciate it. Another program powered by the Truth Network.